0: Welcome to transforming education leadership lessons. This podcast is hosted by Northwestern College. We're bringing you thought leaders who are influencing education and the world around them. Each episode provides new leadership lessons. So you can learn how to embrace your own influence leadership has nothing to do with title or position that leadership has to do with impact and the role of a leader isn't to create followers, it's to enable more leaders. Take away leadership qualities that inspire. I think good leaders really get people brought together around a cause and can inspire them to be better than they were yesterday or to do something great. Care about others. We need teachers out there that are caring and compassionate and are interested in the student beyond the discipline that they're teaching. Show people they matter. We don't have a bullying problem. We don't even have a gun problem. We have a mattering problem. By knowing you matter. You matter to yourself first before you can matter to someone else. So further your impact. When you just authentically love your students, I just don't think you can help but grow. Understand your core values. You can tell pretty quickly any core leader whether or not he or she is there for the mission at hand for the people that they serve or whether they're there for themselves and align your mission.
1: Everything we do on campus, whether it's someone in the maintenance department or someone teaching in the classroom or to coach, uh, it should tie back to our mission of impacting students for the cause of Christ.
0: Discover how to use your influence to inspire others.
2: That is why the relationship is so critical in everything we do, because when people know you care about them, they know yet they have your best interest and then it sinks in.
0: Let's welcome our host, Gary Richardson.
1: Thank you, Leslie, and thank all of you for listening to Transforming Education Leadership Lessons, as I know that you have many options, and your time is valuable. And because of that, we bring in thought leaders from not only regionally, but across the country to inspire and influence your leadership. Today, we will be discussing leadership lessons with Cornelius Minor. Cornelius is a Brooklyn-based educator working with teachers, school leaders, and leaders of community-based organizations to support equitable literacy reform in cities across the globe. In fact, his latest book, We Got This, explores how the work of creating more equitable school spaces is embedded in our everyday choices, specifically in the choice to really listen to kids. We Got This is used extensively in our coursework in our principal preparation program. Cornelius has graciously allowed us to use that book. Cornelius has been featured in Education Week, Brooklyn Magazine, and Teaching Tolerance Magazine. Most recently, along with his partner and wife, Cass Minor, he has established the Minor Collective, a community-based movement designed to foster sustainable change in schools. You can find Cornelius' resources at cassandcorn.com, that's K-A-S-S-A-N-D-C-R-O-N.com. Welcome to the podcast.
2: Oh, well, Gary, it's so incredible to be here with you and Leslie and the team. I'm really excited to chat today.
1: Well, thank you. And while we're here, would you mind just giving us a little bit of background about yourself, anything you're comfortable with or anything that influenced you as you were growing up?
2: Absolutely. You know, of course I'm an educator and that's why I'm here. You know, that so many of us are really thinking actively right now in this moment about how we best serve children across this great country and across the world. So I always center my identity as an educator, but I think it's really important. You know, so many times when teachers get together, we only talk about our work as educators and we rarely ever talk about our lives or our work beyond the classroom. And so much of that impacts what we do every day. So I'm a father that plays out in a really really big way. I've got two kids, you know, fourth grade and second grade, so that's really really exciting. But I think I need to be really specific, especially in light of our conversation today, that I'm a black father, right? So I grew up black in these yet to be United States of America, and I am now attempting to raise children here with all that is happening politically and socially and economically, you know, so I think a lot about my own family and our well-being and then the well-being of our community. When I think about what kids in schools all over America get that impacts that. So of course there, but you know, like that's again, not all that we are, you know, I am an avid skateboarder. So I coach <laughs> a skateboard team here and I'm a game player. I'm a huge fan of my PlayStation five right now. So I am playing lots of games right now, especially cause it's during the summer. I, you know, am really into exploring the city. You know, I am, a new yorker through and through but i connect to so many of your listeners you know i spent much of my time preparing for the education world in iowa so i did some of my studies at the university of northern iowa there so really like yeah so you all are my distant cousins over there okay (laughs) yeah but again so much of my work is just driven by like love for community love for family and just the question how can we achieve better? How do we make good on all those promises made by folks like John Dewey and Horace Mann? You know, so so this is really exciting work for me, and it's a thrill to be here with all of you.
1: Well, thank you. And I graduated from U N I myself. Ah. I'll, just, I'll just leave the year out. And <laughs> Gary, you know, we could have been classmates. <laughs> we, we're going to leave it like that. <laughs> I help with the women's basketball team here, so I do a little coaching myself, but coaching a skateboard team, how does that work?
2: It works just like basketball. You know, skateboarding, in my mind, is the greatest sport in the world, and it actually influences a lot of my scholarship, that actually the book that you all are reading there is influenced by my life as a skateboarder. That was one of the huge influences. Things that I've always said is that skateboarding uh, on a physical level should be impossible, right? Like when you think about the physics involved with skateboarding, you know, to take wood and rubber wheels and to move those things and to put those things in conversation with one another so that you can fly um, should be impossible. You know, and I always tell kids at the beginning of the season that if you listen to me, I can teach you how to fly, you know? Um, And and, and here's the beautiful thing, that if you can learn how to fly, nothing is impossible to you. Like if you can learn how to fly, algebra is a piece of cake. If you can learn how to fly, like reading complex text is simple, you know, and so I really take a look um, throughout the season. I start with a question, like what is the nature of impossibility, right? Um, And and when we think about like magic, you know, we think about alchemy, right, going back to the Middle Ages, right, that magic is a word for something scientific that we can't explain yet right and so i talk to kids all the time about like you know that there are people on this planet who say what we're going to be doing by the end of this season is impossible and if we can surmount the insurmountable in this short season Hmm. then nothing in life will ever be close to you um and so for me skateboarding is a great metaphor for all the challenges that kids are going to face throughout life you know and so there's actually nothing that gives me more pleasure than again teaching kids how to conquer the impossible
1: yeah very interesting for context, um, the book, We Got This, is focusing on equity, access, and the quest to be who our students need us to be. The book is for teachers and principals who want to address inequities in the classroom with practical skills. That's, that, that's a rote intro, obviously. But I'm wondering, how do we make changes in our classroom that provide opportunities for all students? And um, I'm wondering if also you, you could address two things in the book that I found Uh, just really, uh, they just really stuck out when I read them, so here they are. Um, The superpower that all teachers have is listening and students should expect miracles six periods a day. And so there's an expectation that the students should have, which for many years when I taught was the reverse, is this is what you're gonna get, right? So, can you talk a little bit about the power of listening and then um, what that phrase means that students should expect miracles six periods a day?
2: Absolutely. Um, I'll start with listening. You know, that um, when we think about teaching, specifically teaching in North America, um, I think it's important to acknowledge our historical roots, especially as it relates to students of color to indigenous children, to women, um, that that when we think about public education in America as it exists right Mm -hmm. now, it was not designed for women. Like schools were not designed for women to thrive. They were not even designed for women to attend. They were not designed for indigenous children. They were not designed for black and brown children. And so many of the things that still exist in the DNA of schooling today come from that history that we have. And I think it's important to, to acknowledge that, that school was set up for white boys whose parents were property owners. And we know this, right? Um, and I think it's, and, and when one acknowledges that, once school got extended to girls, once school got extended to black and brown folks, to indigenous folks, um, the setup remained the same. So, so the guiding rules and structures were still those that were aligned to educating white boys. And so no one ever sat to ask girls, how best might you learn? How Mm -hmm. best might we design this experience so that you can do the kind of intellectual and social work that you need to do in the world? Um, And so schooling, as it exists now, is a colonial concept, right? That anything that is done unto a group of people without their consent is colonial, right? And so the question that I'm always asking myself is how then do we decolonize schooling? How do we center the very kids that we claim to love um, and make sure that they are the first ones who have a say in their education? Um, and that for me, starts with listening. That when we think about the relationship of the colonizer to the colonized, the thing that's always missing in that relationship is listening. Yes. <laughs> you know and so and so I think that the first step of decolonizing schools has to be then centering the voices of children. And so, and here's the beautiful thing about kids. Kids are always communicating messages to us, um, but we just have to be attentive, right? That that you know, I think it's important to note that no kid is going to communicate in the language that we as adults are used to hearing, right? So no kid's gonna write me the well-worded email and say, dear Mr. Minor, the way that you've curated this academic experience doesn't work best for my needs. Like I'm not gonna get that note from a kid, right? But what I will see is I'll see it in their behavior, right? Or I'll see it in their engagement or lack thereof, or I'll see it in the academic growth that they're making or not making. And so my work as a teacher is to be able to see students like wholly enough in order to understand the messages that they're communicating to me even when those messages aren't communicated in words and sentences sure Um, and so so for me that idea of listening to kids is really important so before i make any instructional decision i want to be thinking what have children communicated to me and how might this experience speak to what they need there are so many times again, where we're prescriptive in our approach, where we feel like we know best. And so I'm always wanting to pause to consider students and their own words and their own voices. Um, that's been really, really important to me. You know, the idea um, that, that we can labor to co-construct and, and emphasis on that verb, co-construct, that there are so many times where as educators, we think that it is our work to construct something that we then deliver to young people. Um, And my stance is no, because, again, that would be colonial. If I go home and construct something and then bring it to young people, um, that is a power dynamic there. But I want to really think alongside kids, how do we co-construct the experiences that will help you to do better math, powerful science, you know, more accurate history. Um, And then we build that together. And so whenever I'm thinking about that process of co-construction, I want kids to know that it is their right to expect the best of their educators. Right. And so I always talk to students. Um, One of the things that I say to kids, you know, I'm gearing up for the start of school this year. And one of the things I say to kids all the time is I'll say that this is what a powerful educator does. And so this the way that I'm doing this vocabulary lesson, this is what a powerful educator does. And the reason why I teach them this is because when they leave me, I want them to be able to demand the same kind of excellence of their teachers that come after me. Sure. I want them when they go to college to be able to advocate for their, themselves. I want them when they you know, go to graduate school to be able to say, this is how I learn best. Could we incorporate this into the seminar? And so those lessons start when you're with me in seventh grade. So I want to say, yep, I'm going to teach you how to demand miracles in your education because um, that's owed to you as a student.
1: So in a, a practical application from that standpoint, what did you use in, in your classrooms that made changes or provided Uh, students better opportunities?
2: Um, I really, it's um, three things. Um, Really the power of observation. So I think about how I'm authentically listening um, and and observing and seeing everything. So like one of the things I already know about you, Gary, I've only known you for 20 minutes of my life. Uh But the very first thing that you did when we got on this call together was you introduced your team. And so that tells me that your team is really valuable to you. So if I am constructing an academic experience for you, Gary, I'm going to construct an experience that allows you to work with members of your team because that matters to you, you know, and you didn't have to say that out loud to me, but like I could sense it in your behavior. I could see it in how you talk about your teammates, right? And so, so being that attentive to every kid, being able to say, okay, Gary's the kind of kid who's team first. And so if I'm constructing a math experience for Gary, I might make a math experience that allows him to use and work alongside his team versus if I'm constructing an experience for Leslie, you know, Leslie might be kind of a, let me try it and make my own mistake first, then I'll consult with the team later. And so a powerful teacher recognizes that the two kids are different and I can construct classroom experiences that allow for both kids to coexist powerfully in the classroom. Sure. And so that's the first to be observational. Um, But then the second, and you saw me hinting toward it there, the second is to be flexible. That's the second tool that I used. is that there are so many teachers who will say, oh, I just met Gary, and Gary's a team first kind of mathematician. But then they'll say, but the way that we've always done math in this department is you do your worksheet by yourself. And so even if Gary is team first, I'm going to construct a learning experience that goes against everything that Gary is. And so as a teacher, I can be flexible. I can say, you know what, Gary's a team first kind of mathematician. But in class, we usually do things on, in an individual kind of way. So let me think about how I can be flexible and reinvent how we do things because Gary's in the class now, you know, and, so, and we owe that to kids, right? And so that's that second tool. So when I think about crafting equitable experiences, an inauthentic or inequitable experience would be let me force Gary to conform to this tradition that we've established that has nothing to do with him. An equitable experience would be like, oh my gosh, I just got Gary this year, and this new student is a gift. He does things a little differently, but I am allowed and I can reconstruct how I do things to meet his needs more specifically. And then the third tool that I use is reflection, Um, is after I have made the changes so that I can best meet Gary's needs, I want to make sure I'm attentive to the outcome. So did these changes actually benefit Gary? Is he a better mathematician? Is he better at science? Is he stronger at history? Is he playing more music in music class? Is he you know, engaging more in physical education? So, so I wanna take a moment to reflect to see if the changes that I made actually had outcomes that were impactful and powerful for Gary.
1: As part of the book as well, any teacher that would get their hands on it would see that uh, you also provide a structure for them which which as a, a teacher, I needed things written down or in a sequence. And whether it be I'm, I'm looking at the lesson plan thinking chart or listening to kids organizer, what other kinds of things do you use that really helps you think through this process?
2: One of the things that I think a lot about is, and I love that you use the word process. I think a lot about the process of innovation, like how an engineer works. Right, Um, Like an engineer would see a problem and then they would think about the nature of the problem and then they ask themselves, what might I invent or what might I create that can solve this problem or that can ease this challenge for me? And then how can I test that thing to make sure that it works? I think one of the things that I have really been doing a lot of is I've been trying to see our work as educators, as engineers. So many times when we see a challenge or a problem, we look for a prescription. Sure. So we'll say, well, let me wait for my principal to tell me what to do, right. or let me wait for my department head to tell me what to do. No engineer would look at a crumbling bridge and say, let me wait for my boss to tell me what to do. Yeah. They're gonna get to work on repairing the crumbling bridge, right? Yep. Um, and so I think about if a kid doesn't read powerfully, I'm not gonna wait around for my principal to tell me what to do because every minute that I lose with that kid is a minute that that kid will never get back in their life right? And so I get to go to work as an engineer. I get to look at the kid and say, well, what might be the barriers in the way to this kid reading? And how do I adjust myself? So one of the things that you see me doing here is I'm really laboring, even though I provide lots of tools in the book, it is my great hope that people will use the tools as catalysts, but then they'll eventually walk away from the tools that really want teachers to carry with them that engineer's mindset. And as long as we're waiting for a graphic organizer, as long as we're waiting for a set of instructions on what to do, we're always going to need somebody else. Hmm. So for me, it's about using those graphic organizers, using those tools to eventually get us to this place where we think as engineers, that one of the great tragedies in this profession is, you know, and I travel around the world from school to school to school, it's almost... 100% 100% of the time, when I sit with groups of people, and we look at the challenges that exist in their school communities. The first words is people like, well, we can't work on this because we have to wait until somebody tells us how to solve it. And again, kids just don't have the time. If there's a kid who's struggling with their multiplication, I don't have two weeks to wait until somebody tells me what to do. I want to be able to address that kid's needs right now. Really, that's my dream for educators.
1: Yeah. One of the statements that you make in the book, in fact, it might be a chapter, is to question the rules, policies, procedures, and practices and customs that define your class culture. How do we do that? And I'll leave this up to you, but feel free to share the story about Jeff.
2: Absolutely, yeah. You know, that's a hard story to share. That was a difficult story to write. I always think about when we talk about equity, when we talk about inclusive classrooms, when we talk about seeing all kids, those things are euphemism. I think it's really important to name. The reason why we need equity in schools is because what currently exists is inequity, right? Mm -hmm. And when we talk about inequity, we're talking about sexism. We're talking about homophobia. We're talking about racism. We're talking about classism. We're talking about ableism. And I think it's really important for people to confront that, that there would not be a movement for equity (laughs) if inequity did not exist already. And so what we're talking about, and I want to be very clear right here on this podcast, is what we're talking about is the various inequities that exist in our classrooms. Now, here's the thing. When we talk about racism, when we talk about sexism or classism or homophobia, like we've gotten to a place in society where people take like a thing like sexism, for example, and they treat it as if it is merely a personality trait. So we will we'll say a word like sexism and people will assume, oh, what you mean is that people are unkind or what you mean is that people are mean. And that's not what I mean at all. When I name sexism, I'm not just talking about people being unkind. When I talk about racism, I'm not just talking about people being mean-spirited. I am talking about systems that when sexism shows up in school, it doesn't show up because people are unkind. It shows up because we're inattentive to systems. And I wanna be very clear, systems are any rules any policies, any customs or traditions that exist in my classroom that lead to negative outcomes for specific Mm -hmm. groups of people. So if I engage in any kind of work in my classroom and girls get less than boys, that work is sexist work, right? You know, and so I think all the time I'm working in a school right now and we're looking at the AP physics class and in the AP physics class, what we're noticing is that even though the girls study hard. When we look at the scores and the outcomes at the end of the year, the boys are outscoring the girls. And when the teacher first asked me to work alongside her, she was like, I need you to come help me fix the girls. There's something wrong with the girls, like they're not scoring as high as the boys in AP physics. Now, here's what we know, there's nothing wrong with the girls. And so the question then that I had was, what is it that's happening in the classroom? that is preventing girls from achieving what the boys or their male counterparts are achieving. And so we started looking at how the classroom was organized. And to shorten the story, one of the things that we discovered in AP Physics, you know, it's a challenging course. Kids have to do a lot of really challenging work. And so they have study groups that meet after school for AP Physics. So a lot of the AP Physics kids meet after school twice a week. So they do their regular courses, but then they study together after school. But here's what I learned that in this community, especially in the wintertime, it gets dark at about 4.30. When you know, you're know you done with your study session and the kids all walk home, it is much harder for a young lady who is 14, 15, 16, to right. walk home in the dark. The kids, what would happen is in the winter, when it got dark, girls would stop coming to the study sessions, not because they were being irresponsible. And so what I help that teacher to see is like, oh, if the only way to perform well on the AP exam is to stay after school until 4.30, then for the students who can't do that, this system that we have built is a flawed system. So then the question became, how can we construct study systems that allow kids to access that information at times of the day that don't require them to walk home in the dark? So what we did was we created an AM study session. We created the AM study session, scores for girls doubled. Attendance at those study sessions tripled for girls. You know, like and no so, kidding. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so again, so the problem wasn't because it would have been really easy to say the girls are the problem, right? It would have been really easy to say the girls are lazy. They don't come to the study session. But rather, we had to say, what is it about the way that we've constructed AP physics right. that is having a sexist impact? And so and, and here's what I would argue. No one on that science team was an unkind person. No one on that science team was a mean person. But what we had done was we had constructed a system that had a sexist outcome. And I think it's really important because the minute you say sexism, everybody's like, well, I'm a nice person. I'm not sexist. But we constructed this system that makes it almost impossible for girls to come study, especially if it's required that they walk home after dark. Yeah. What we did was we reinvented the system. How do we create a system that creates other opportunities for girls to study that don't require them to walk home in the dark? Yeah. And so when we talk about equity, when we talk about addressing the injustices that exist in the world, I think those conversations often get hijacked by conversations about kindness. And so if we're going to overturn sexism, I don't need more people to be kind. I mean, that would be a great byproduct. Yeah, I love people being kind. But what I really need is for people to examine the sexist systems that might exist in their classrooms and reconstruct them. You know, when we talk about racism, every time we have a conversation about racism, people make these huge commitments that they're going to be nicer. You know, I, of course I want you to be nicer, but really what I want you to do is to look at the racist systems that might exist in your classroom and reconstruct them.
1: Very good. Yeah. Yeah. We are visiting with Cornelius Minor, author of We Got This, in this episode of Transforming Education Leadership Lessons. What are you working on right now that might interest our listeners or surprise them?
2: (laughs) I'm working on a lot. Well, you know, it's back to school season. So I'm enjoying the last days of my vacation. So I'm reading lots of books. I am working on a multimedia project right now. I'm having a lot of fun with that, listening to lots of music. So, really, just having a good time. You know, I think I'm a big believer that as an educator, we teach kids who are going to exist in this world in all three dimensional ways, right? That we're not just teaching readers, right? We're not just teaching mathematicians, we are teaching people who are going to exist in this world. And if we're preparing people for the world, I think it's important as an educator that I experience the world, right? I spend a lot of time consuming like youth culture that I normally wouldn't consume, because I need to know it, right? I spend a lot of time just enjoying the neighborhood and breathing in the community. um, Because I think it's really, really important. There are so many times where we're plugged into our content as educators but we're not plugged into the people or we're not plugged into the community so i typically spend my summers just hanging out being plugged in so that when school starts in the fall and a kid mentions a movie that they saw or a concert that they attended i have sure. some sure Yep. Of that. Yep. Yeah. yeah
1: cornelius what what did the pandemic show us about equity access and inclusion that we need to build upon
2: oh so much so much i, I think um The pandemic revealed what communities who have been marginalized by school have always known, that things are not equitable, specifically if you're black or brown, specifically if you're poor, specifically if you're an immigrant, specifically if you're queer, right? And so we were able to see into people's homes and learn and see what they have been telling us for generations Um, and, and so, I really, really hope we listen this time, that I don't think the pandemic taught folks like me anything new, but it revealed to folks who haven't been paying attention a lot. And so simple things like we learned the extraordinary emotional labor that kids do when they take care of their siblings, right? We learned the extraordinary work that parents do just to keep food on the table like we've heard these stories but we saw them firsthand when we were in zooms in people's living rooms every day right and so my biggest fear is that we will return to school this fall and people will make every effort to return to normal right i think that normal is a deeply toxic term that that the normal that existed pre-March 2020 is not a normal that I wanna return to. It is still a normal that left far too many of our black and brown students at the margins, far too many of our queer students, far too many of our poor students were not fully included in that normal that existed in 2020. And so now that we have seen these things, I am hoping that we return to better, right? Now that we have seen these things, we need to reconstruct those systems so that more kids are included. And I'll tell a short story here. Like, um, this was right before the pandemic, but two years ago, and I'm coming up on the anniversary, you know how you do it in the first week of school, like it's the first week of school, I'm welcoming the kids to the, to the school year, and I'm explaining what they can expect of me um, as a teacher. And one of the things that I said to the class, and this is an innocuous teacher statement, but I said to the class, if completing your homework is not your number one priority, then you're doing it wrong that completing your homework needs to be your number one priority. There was this kid who became really furious with me after I said that, and I didn't understand why, but he was just like, he wouldn't trust me. He wouldn't talk to me. He just, you know, really furious. It took months for me to do some digging. And then it came up later, it, uh, sitting with him months later, one of the things he said to me, she was like, remember when you said that to us in the first week of school? He was just like, I want you to understand that my mom has three jobs. And so when I go home every night, my number one priority is picking up my two younger siblings from daycare. And then my second priority is getting them fed and bathed and ready for the next school day. So if I'm lucky, I get to my homework uh-huh. at 9 p.m. And he was just very clear with me. He was like, you don't know my life. You don't get to tell me what my priorities are. And that kid was absolutely right. <laughs> you know, like, And so, so this idea that it becomes our work as teachers, especially in this historical moment, to really think about all that we have learned, and think about how we construct sustainable systems that allow kids to thrive—all kids, not just the kids who can do their homework at three, not just the kid whose kids who've got two parents at home to support them, not just the kids who have you know disposable income for youth sports or for tutors—but all kids.
1: Right. Yeah. And so you went from having a student in shutdown mode to one that shared all that with you in a matter of months. Yeah. So that's a good on you type of feeling. I'm yeah. assuming how do we start that better is maybe yeah, a good yeah. question.
2: Well, um, to be more thoughtful about who we're actually teaching. I think as, as teachers in America, if I may speak broadly, teachers in America do a good job of teaching people exactly like them. They don't do a very good job of teaching kids who are different. Yeah. So we do a really great job of teaching middle-class kids, you know? And because we know that most teachers in America are white women, we do a really good job of teaching white kids. But to have to step outside of oneself And to engage in the critical acts of empathy and understanding required to teach people who are different than us must be the way forward.
1: This might be redundant, but I'm wondering, what are you curious about right now in the world of education?
2: Uh, So much. You know, one of the things that I am really thinking a lot about, especially now, is one of the things that we learned is that the borders between disciplinary subjects are false borders. I learned that in a big way during the pandemic, that when you're talking about physics, you're also talking about art. When you're talking about art, you're also talking about literature, you know? And so one of the things that I'm curious about that I am personally working on, I learned in a big way when I was in people's houses on Zoom, like I learned that a physics lesson would quickly (laughs) become an art lesson and that would quickly become a lesson on literature. And so I am really going back into brick and mortar school with that understanding, that these disciplinary boundaries aren't real. And I am really engaging the whole human, I'm engaging like kids. And so one of the things that we are doing some identity mapping to start the year, I'm already planning out how our start of the year is going to go, but I'm drawing on the work of the great Sara Ahmed. We're going to start with some identity mapping early in the semester. And that identity mapping, even though we're thinking about identities, connects directly to geography and so then what has to come next is geography but then those geography lessons connect directly to the math that we're doing and so then we got to do some math you know and so i'm really allowing the learning to really blossom in organic ways and so that's been my great curiosity is to really think about how all of that goes down i'm thinking lots with kids too about the world that they live in we do this thing as adults where we say that we're preparing kids for the world but we know nothing about the world that they actually exist in I am really doing Mm -hmm. a lot of listening. Again, going back to the idea of listening to really understand what kids are navigating. I had some exit interviews at the end of last year. And one of the things that one of the young people told me is when you were teaching all that stuff, it meant nothing to me until you told us that we could use everything that we were learning about logic to convince our parents to let us hang out late. (laughs) Then it clicked for me. And, and so I was like, wow, so I taught weeks of logic and argumentation, and it meant nothing to the kids. But then the minute I say you can use everything about the logic and argumentation that we're learning here and get your parents to say yes when you want to hang out late. And so I'm really trying to learn more about youth culture in that way. So that i can make those very specific connections to what we're doing in class to what's happening in their lives that that we do this thing that i think is really kind of bad as teachers where we'll do this thing where we're like i'm teaching you this thing because it's going to be good for you in college and kids look at me and they're like that's five years from now sir that has no bearing on my life right now and so i want to be able to do the thing where i say i'm teaching you this thing and it's going to have payoff tomorrow
1: yep one of the things that we find from people that listen are their interest in what you're interested in reading wise or listening to. Would you mind sharing a little bit of that?
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'm a huge reader, huge music fan, so I read and listen to a lot. Actually, I've got some books right here. So this book, um, Wild Tongues Can't Be Tamed, it, I'm just so excited about this. Soon to be out by Fennel. Um, Fennell. Like, I cannot wait until this book is out. I'm so excited. It's a collection of essays about Latinx identity. And so again, I've been very curious about people who are different than me. Mm -hmm. And so this collection is just exquisite. I have loved every syllable of this book, been learning lots there. I just finished the final revival of Opal and Nev by Donnie Walton, which is an extraordinary piece of fiction told as rock documentary i'm a huge music fan i spend you know a lot of my life pre-pandemic at concerts and at shows and so this just really speaks to me on every level my favorite novel this year so far has been the prophets by robert jones jr just an incredible incredible story we talk about the historical silences right like the things that get left out of our reading and so this has just been a story that has connected so many dots for me In terms, and it takes place during slavery. It's about two enslaved people who fall in love, right? That how do we nurture love in this horrific time? So it's just about how two people nurture a powerful love in the midst of the most oppressive kinds of chaos. And so it's been really powerful. So that's my reading. I'm reading lots of, you know, yeah. Spider-Man. My my favorite comic book artist right now is Jamal Eigel. So I'm reading everything that Jamal Eigel puts out right now. I'm listening to a lot of music right now. I'm on a Beyonce kick right now. So I've been doing a lot of Beyonce, of course. So like she just came out with the videos for Black is King, her album. So she, visual album came out recently. So I've been doing a lot of Beyonce recently. Been doing... A lot of wu-tang clan recently wu-tang clan is probably my favorite group on the planet i've been following the saga of their one-of-a-kind album and that is now the federal government just sold this one-of-a-kind album that wu-tang clan put together so just like listen to a lot of wu-tang listening to a lot of miles davis recently that you know whenever i am you know kind of thinking and 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 so kind of blue is my favorite album
1: good stuff very interesting
2: Yeah, and then, you know, at night, you know, fire up the PlayStation. So I've been going back and forth between PS5 and Xbox One. So a lot of Gears of War on the Xbox side. And on the PlayStation side, I have been doing a lot of Ratchet and Clank.
1: I think Mike is resonating with that here. Some of that, maybe. (laughs) Cornelius, is there anything that I should have asked you that I didn't?
2: Oh, man, you covered it. Like, I'm just really, really excited that you all... Have a chance to study the work and that this is a part of the discourse that you're having there on campus and i really really hope that that you all find the work challenging in every sense of that word that i hope that the work really pushes people to become uncomfortable and from that discomfort i hope that you all are optimally productive yeah Yeah.
1: thanks for being with us i really appreciate it this was really good
2: thank you thank you well this is exciting so to you and your team just like infinite thanks i really appreciate everything
1: we want to thank Cornelius for giving of his time and sharing his wisdom as we reflect on leaders that inspire and influence education and our world. That was just really good. There was so much there. Leslie, what did you think?
0: Yes, amazing. What an honor to talk with him. And what I love about our podcast is we get to pull back kind of the curtain on on these great guests mm-hmm. and the tools that they provide come from a place of such authenticity and a desire, as he mentioned, he coaches skateboarding and he truly wants to teach them how to fly. We're teaching kids and we're relating to people that exist in all dimensions. They exist in, in a world that we can understand at a greater level and if we can't connect with where they're coming from, we can't expect to help prepare them to where they're going. A couple of highlights you know, that we talked about was that idea of listening. We talk a lot about listening i think as a way to care and to connect with someone but he talked about it in a way of understanding Mm -hmm. to lead to action how do students learn best and how to invite them into that conversation and to co-construct with them the best way to help them learn and help them to connect to all the material
1: yeah the co-constructing experiences and then he was able to relate that to Being observational, being flexible, and then reflecting and including those things. And he gave great analogy just using us here in this room.
0: Exactly. Yes. And thinking of educators as engineers, that process of innovation to really adjust to what your students need and, and to also understand what's going on and what they're communicating even without words. I thought that was really powerful. Yeah. And, of course, the idea of equity and how it's tied into systems where we need to pursue equity because inequity exists, right? And if we confront that as a system and take that away from a personality trait, of course, we all want to be kind, as he talked about, but it's a system. It's the flaws and the rules and the policies that are creating a harmful experience that we need to address.
1: Right. Systems are set up in a certain way, well-intended, but because of the way they're set up, they can marginalize students, and we need to be careful of that.
0: Right, and they were possibly constructed and intended for a different reason and for a different group, as you talked about, right? Different time. Yeah, we have to identify that first.
1: The superpower all teachers have is listening. That was interesting. And a charge for all of us that teach in front of students is that our students should actually expect miracles six periods a day. So how do we as teachers provide that miracle? And we do that by co-constructing the experience. So he has some really interesting books that he read.
0: Yes, he is well-read, well-listened. I love his curiosity of the world and, and continuous learning. A wild Tongues. Can't be tamed is one book. Secondly, The Prophets by Robert Jones Jr. Mm-hmm. The final revival of Opal and Nev is the last book.
1: Yeah, it's really good stuff. Flowed well with our last podcast, talking about handling differences, talking about inclusive excellence, all things that Cornelius related to here. So,
0: and it won't be easy. I love his challenge that digging into making real change cannot be always easy or comfortable.
1: Right. You can't prepare students for the world unless you know the world that they're in, which was very powerful on his part. Well, thanks to all of you for listening to Transforming Education Leadership Lessons. As a leader in education, you matter, and how you lead matters to a whole bunch of people that you serve on a daily basis. You were created for significance. Special thanks to Leslie and Mike for co-hosting and helping with the editing of this podcast. And for Leslie, Mike... I'm Gary, until next time, inspire and influence.